As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, June 16th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we discuss another promotion in San Francisco as Luis Matos has joined the big league roster this week. We'll discuss the underperforming Seattle Mariners and try to get a sense of how they might tweak that roster and make some adjustments to stay in the playoff picture in the American League. Keith wrote about the 2013 draft class this week, redrafted that group. We'll talk about some of the more challenging players to project going forward out of what was ultimately a pretty weak class of players. And time permitting, we will try and dig into what's going wrong for the Royals this season in Kansas City. It's been just a disaster year with a young core that I think many people hoped would take at least a small step forward as a group in 2023. But Keith, let's begin with Luis Matos. I think it was last week on this show, we were talking about the Giants having a pretty nice year with players in their minor league system, stepping up, putting together big performances, a handful of guys actually getting the call already, Patrick Bailey being one of them. Uh, but Luis Matos had cut his strikeout rate down to 9% during his time at A. spent some time at AAA after that, cut it even more to 6.9%, was showing some power, was showing some speed, and doing that while being a 21-year-old. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a really impressive performance age to level, showing all these tools. Because of an injury to Mitch Hanniger this week, the timetable got sped up even more, and now Matos is with the big club. So where should Giants fans and those who are into projections set their sights on Luis Matos's rookie production? Yeah, it's quite a turnaround because last year he hit, uh, I just happen to have it in front of me, 211, 275 on base, 344 slug in high A. Um, he had a quad injury that bothered him for a pretty big chunk of the year. And when I saw him in the fall league, I didn't see him in the regular season, but the notes I had were not good on him i saw him in fall league and he just didn't look like himself at all um on on either side of the ball he wasn't even playing center the same way he had and it looks and sounds like he's back to where he was two years ago when he was a top 100 prospect and we were all kind of excited about the upside a plus power plus defense and center plus run guy who maybe wouldn't draw a lot of walks 
but might come into that also might just develop more. It was really pitch recognition rather than just drawing walks that he might come into that more with age and experience too. He was 19, two years ago, um, last year at 20 had the disappointing year this year. It seemed like, Oh, he's healthy again. Oh, he's back to the guy that he was prior to the injury. And maybe that was just the reason. Maybe it was the injury and a little bit of bad luck, but it's also just seemed like he wasn't hitting the ball as hard. He wasn't running well. Maybe he just physically did not feel hundred percent. And that's kind of why, and you know, I don't love to just say, Oh, just throw last season out because it's inconvenient. But what we're seeing from him tool-wise and performance-wise this year lines up pretty well with what the optimistic projections were for him before 2022. And so I'm I'm very much on it. I'm glad to see him up. I wouldn't be surprised if he has a lot of inconsistency. If you see stretches where it's probably not going to be a lot of strikeouts or a lot of swing and miss, but it might very well be a lot of why did he choose to swing at that pitch, right? It is about getting himself into good counts to get pitches he can drive. And that's just ne- generally never been a strength of his. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe he's actually made huge strides in that department too. I am not going to buy into a pretty small sample in two separate leagues, especially in AAA, where we've talked about what's going on with the strike zone down there. I, I don't want to buy into that and say, oh, he's a totally different guy at the plate. Let's just say he's back to the guy we hoped he would be two years ago. And that's also pretty good. From a physical standpoint, seeing him, he doesn't look like a guy that's going to generate a ton of power. Is it more 10 to 15 home run power with good feel for the strike zone over time that gets him to be a you know, 280, 290 hitter that steals a ton of bases on top of that? Like, Is that where we're going longer term? I think there's more power potential in there, um, despite the fact that he's obviously not the biggest guy, right? I think he's listed at 5'11", which means he's probably 5'9". Uh, but he's always made pretty hard contact, especially considering his age and size. You know, I worry sometimes I hear that from scouts, and I've probably never really seen the fully healthy Matos for more than like a single spring training game, or I've seen most most of my looks at Matos have been when he's not been right. You know, I do wonder sometimes if we're saying, oh, he hits the ball pretty hard, you know, when on guys playing in lower levels where we don't have easy access to exit velocity data, if they're scaling it a little bit in their heads for, oh, he's only 19, or oh, he's a twerp. Which I can say because I'm also a twerp. Baseball does not care how tall you are. It's just how hard you hit the ball. And that'll be something to maybe keep an eye on. If he is making hard contact, not hard contact for a smaller guy, but just hard contact, do I think there's power in there? Everyone said when he was originally a prospect coming out of going, when they first signed him and then it get coming out of the really strong 2021 season, this guy's got some power. It's not 30 homers. 20? 25? Yeah, I, I think that's potentially in there for guys going to make a ton of contact and in theory should be hitting the ball hard enough. Maybe that's the one thing to watch for and also understand too. He is 21 and I don't think he's fully filled out. I think he can get stronger, but you'd like to see him getting enough contact quality. And I'm thinking here, I'm thinking more exit velocity rather than sort of overall, like, is he hitting it in the air enough, et cetera. Is this guy hitting the ball hard enough that it's going to translate into power? I, I think so. Yeah, and I think over the course of the summer, we will get a much better sense against premium velocity, how how much hard contact he can make. But I think the age is a good point because I think we've seen when some of that information becomes public for prospects, the quality of the contact. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I see people misinterpret it or do what I think is a misinterpretation and say, this yep. is who he is. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like at 20, 21 years old, many players are going to get stronger and bat speed can still increase. And we've seen older players increase their bat speed. There are ways to work on that. So I would definitely be 
cautious about writing a player off at that age, even if you saw underwhelming exit velo numbers at the big league level for the first time. Because I think we can, as we get more and more stat cast information, we're going to have a better sense of what a realistic trajectory can be for someone who might initially be underwhelming with the quality of the contact they're making. I mean, I agree with that and your broader point too, that I think a lot of people tend to misinterpret a lot of this advanced data, particularly on minor leaguers. I mean, one of the reasons I hate seeing people constantly quote uh, WRC plus for minor leaguers, like that formula is about runs created. In other words, your how much your offensive production contributed to the major league team scoring runs, which is itself built off major league data. What is it? What contributes to run scoring at the major league level? It is a not built off minor league data, and b not f- built for its predictive value either. Um, and I could throw a few examples out of guys with pretty high for their ages WRC plus numbers in the minors who never turned into anything. Chase, Chase Vela, V-A-L-L-O-T is one of my favorite examples of like 140 something WRC plus in Wilmington. And I was like, no, he's terrible. This guy cannot hit. Um, I think two years later, he was out of baseball. That's why I always pick. He's a really fortunate example for me to choose too. He really underscores my point. Um, but I saw something about, you know, Matt Mervis's exit velocities were, I don't know, it was some time period, but they were very good in the last, I don't know, three weeks or something like, yeah, but it's all off of basically bad stuff, right? He he had last I checked, he had one hit since he came up to the majors on a fastball of ninety, it's ninety four, ninety five, or better. He's just getting destroyed by velocity because he's got a slow bat. Um, and so, yeah, if you can hit the weakest pitching hard, that might keep you in the majors on and off for a couple of years. But that is not right. You can't just use that number in a vacuum. And the point I was trying to make on Matos is that. We think he can hit, like in terms of the sense of putting the bat on the ball. And he's got a pretty good track record of doing that. And I expect him to continue doing that in the majors. Can he A get to get to count slash choose the right pitches to make the better quality contact and B have the strength to make that better quality contact? So in his case, it is is the exit velocity there in the context of these other things, right? Is he making enough contact and is he doing it against the right kinds of pitches for him that I think ultimately could make him productive. Like he put a couple of balls in play yesterday. None of them was especially hard hit. It was good to see the plate coverage. Good to see he could square a couple of balls up. You know, we'd like to see over the next couple of weeks, hopefully he's making harder quality, higher quality contact, hitting the ball harder going forward. And also showing that he can catch up to big league quality stuff. The hardest thing for guys to do jumping to the big leagues, it is, you know, pitchers, you'll see, pitchers who might have one or two plus pitches in the minors you'll see big velocity but get to the majors and you've got guys with multiple weapons and a good idea of how to use them and how to move them around or how to sequence pitches to get you out and the ability to locate it at a Mm -hmm. much more consistent and high level than you see at all your minor league stops Uh, marco luciano is worth bringing up here too because i think if if you'd asked a lot of people going into the season if one of Matos or Luciano is going to debut this year, and both would have been probably considered long shots based yes. on how last season went for them, I think you would have found more people willing to say, yeah, probably Luciano late in the year. To me, that's where that would have landed. But even if it was close, Marco Luciano is having a, a slightly underwhelming season so far at AA. He's only played 35 games this year. Mm-hmm. He's getting to his power, nine homers, four for four as a base stealer, but he's striking out 27.8% of the time. The thing I see right next to that is a high walk rate. I see him walking 15.2% of the time. And I think this goes back to something I 
bring up with you on a regular basis, talk about it on rates and barrels a lot, is I don't think every strikeout rate is even remotely the same. I think the reasons you strike out can vary wildly. Mm-hmm. With Luciano, is this the start to his 2023 at AA? Is it as much of a, a step back as it might appear on the surface? I don't think so for two reasons. Uh, one is he he had a back injury, um, which was which held him out until um, the very, very end of spring training. I think I saw him DH at the very end, and it might have been his first actual game action in spring training. Um, and so that's why he missed all of April. And then if you look, too, he started very slowly in May and was striking out more and not hitting for average, kind of not doing a lot of everything. And he's improving just May, June over May, a very crude split. But the fact that he is getting better, he is making more contact and doing more on contact. That's what you want to see. Now, obviously, what you really want to see then is he just keeps going, right? Keeps going, keeps improving or just keeps hitting like he was in June, rather than this just being the variations of a normal season where there's ups and downs. But the fact that it is better results on contact and a lot more contact for a guy who missed a lot of time, basically missed all of spring training, had a real injury, uh, you know, and probably was a little rusty when he came back. I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. I, I do really want to see what what the Giants end up doing with him positionally. He's still playing shortstop. I never thought he was a shortstop beforehand. But if he's already having back problems, like just put him, this guy's going to hit. Just put him in left field. I, I know that seems like a waste of a guy who is nominally a shortstop and maybe he could stay on the dirt. But look, if this guy's already having injury questions, just put him at a low stress position and say, your job is to be a hitter. And if putting you in left clears a path for you to the big leagues, you're not trying to work on defense. Maybe it helps you stay healthy. Great. Let's just have you do that. And maybe that gets them to the big leagues faster. It's not like they're looking right now for um, for help at any other position where he could potentially play, I was going to say. Because it's not, I was going to say shortstop. That doesn't matter. He is not a shortstop. I don't know anybody who thinks he's a shortstop. It's that said of maybe some people in the Giants organization. So put him in another spot and just keep him moving. Assuming he keeps hitting. I'm not saying call him up tomorrow either. I think he's got to do this for several more weeks. And continue to stay healthy. He's been healthy since he came back. It's been about six, seven weeks. So far, so good. Just got to see more of that, too. Yeah, maybe a guy we'll see get a bump to AAA after the Futures game or, or sometime later on yeah. this summer. I think that's yeah. a, a very realistic expectation for Marco Luciano. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk about the Mariners for a bit. They have underperformed at this point in the season. It's not all bad. I mean, when you take a look at what they've done as a team so far, they've got the best war in baseball as a pitching staff, Fangraph's mm-hmm. war. They're second in K-BB percentage. That's not a surprise since that's going to be factored into something like war. 
And that's with Robbie Ray making just one start for them. We mm-hmm. knew the strength of this rotation was one of the best things about this team. The bullpen was great last year. Bullpen still looks really good. They've had some injuries in that group as well. The interesting thing with them for me is that they've had a lot of veterans fall off a cliff. Colton Wong and AJ Pollock really just don't look at the same guys. Mm-hmm. And the guys they were going to rely on more heavily, Eugenio Suarez and Teoscar Hernandez have taken pretty big steps back as well. So they don't have nearly as much power coming from this lineup as expected. How do you fix it? I mean, they've got Jared Kelnick going well. Like, that's that's a good thing. Julio Rodriguez hasn't been the guy that he was for most of last season. How correctable are these players right now? Who can be fixed and who needs to be upgraded as you think about this roster moving forward this season? Yeah, and Kelnick, by the way, really hasn't hit well since April. Right? I remember somebody saying, oh, the breakout is happening. It might have stopped. I'm a Kalanick guy. I always have been. But he's been striking out at an alarming rate since end of April, early May, and the production has gone down with it. So, you know, I'm not willing to say, I mean, Kalanick is arguably their best hitter by season stat line, but I don't know that I pick him to be that the rest of the season or to think he's more than, you know, maybe a bottom of the order type hitter for the rest of the season. I mean, they're in a they're in a tough spot. They invested. And they entrusted spots to veterans, several of whom, I mean, Wong and all just look finished at this point. But Wong's collapse in his early 30s is just shocking to me. I mean, I was never the biggest Colton Wong partisan. He ended up being a better player in the big leagues than I thought he would be as a draft pick or as a prospect. But I mean, could he really be day 32? Could he really just be done? Seems improbable, but really hasn't been good the last two years. Um, and so they're not, those are not easy things to fix on the fly. They have multiple spots that they would need to upgrade on midseason. And, you know, could they, I'm sure they could do one of those things, but could they fill, you know, three spots, maybe second, third, and find a DHD? It's probably the easiest thing for them to do. But also when you're not getting a ton of production out of any of your three outfield spots also. Like, yeah, they're in a pretty bad position, actually, despite having great run prevention. That offense is really nobody's playing up to expectations it may be for France, you know, in Kalanick for a month, obviously. And that makes it really hard to fix. It's not one or two holes. It's like five. Yeah, because if you look at rest of season projections against results so far, projections usually are pretty favorable to guys that have multi-year track records yep. like Teoscar Hernandez and like Eugenio Suarez. So you could kind of convince yourself, if you're a Mariners fan, you could say, well, no, Teoscar Hernandez will probably be you know, a high 20% K rate guy that barrels up the ball 12, 15% of the time and starts getting mm-hmm. that power more often again. And Eugenio Suarez could have one of those big power summers. He's done it before. Sure, he's a, a low average guy that maybe has a 320, 330 OBP, but he could go back to being the guy we're used to him being for the rest of the season. It's mm-hmm. easy to tell yourself those stories. I think it's a little harder to convince yourself that Pollock and Wong come back and offer a lot. And the rest of season projections on Kelnick kind of bring you back down with some gravity a little bit. 27.2% K rate going forward. That might even be optimistic. He's up over 32% for the season, even with things going well so far. You're happy with his step forward, I think, but you're still not sure why he's swinging and missing as often as he does. This would be a guy that I'd look back at and say, if you were number scouting him as a prospect, you'd be blown away by the K rate being where it's at right now. Yeah. Now that he's over 800 career plate appearances at the big league level, but because he's so young, there's probably still some reason to believe that he can whittle away at that over time. Yeah, you would really think so, right? Given, like you said, given his whole history, 
you know, it's not like this was a guy who had trouble with quality pitching when he saw it in the minors. I mean, I think some of it is probably specific to him. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who've said Kalanick is particularly hard on himself and that maybe he was getting advice from people outside the organization who are also not helping matters. That's a possibility. Also, yeah, it's it's really hard to hit big league pitching. And the gap between the minors and the majors is as big as it's ever been. And folks who are just stat scouting the minors and whether you're just doing that off what you see on baseball reference or whether you've got access to some of this more advanced data, it's not that simple, right? You can you know, mention Mervis earlier. A lot of people were pointing to Mervis's um, you know, stat cast style data from the minors and and saying he what a good prospect he is. The Matt Moore, Matt Mervis's story is far from done. He's got like a 90 PA in the big league. So I'm not saying he's a zero, but it's hard. It's hard to hit big league pitching and it might take more time. And some of these guys, there are going to be more guys than ever from this period in time who appear like they'll be good hitters in the majors who do not bring good minor league performances forward to the majors. And there are a couple of reasons, but I think the biggest one is just the gap between the majors and the minors is as big as it's ever been. Yeah, I think that's been the case for a few seasons now. Maybe the the lost 2020 season sort of opened that up and, and closing that gap could take a very long time. I don't know if you can ever make up that much ground. Plus, yeah. you can track some of the minor leagues, fewer paths for development. All of those yep. things are probably big factors in something like that. As far as the Mariners go, prospect-wise, you know, players they don't need to rely on right now that they could possibly move over the course of the summer to get some upgrades. Who do you think their most realistic and best trade pieces are when you look at their system right now? Yeah, I wonder if they would consider dealing someone like Harry Ford, who's having a great season in high A as a 20-year-old, does have positional questions. A lot of people don't believe he's going to be a catcher long-term. He's super athletic. Um, He uh, actually has hit for, I would say, less power than expected, but been a much better hitter for contact and in terms of getting on base now it's two straight years with a 425 obp last year 424 this year but i'm going to say it's probably a skill he has and he's just he's really good he's really valuable could you put him out there and trade for a gut not for a rental but for some sort of multi-year player with multiple years of control who addresses a critical need or do they say no he's the one we can't trade especially if they really think he is a catcher which is also a possibility i i think it's unlikely but it is still a possibility um do they say, nope, that's the one we keep and everybody else is potentially available. And then I think it does get a little bit more um, difficult for them because that's the guy certainly everybody is going to ask for at this point. Um, Their first round pick from last year, Cole Young is off to a very good start in low A. I'm sure they'll get hit on him a ton as well, but then it starts to, I think it starts to taper off a bit in terms of guys who'll get you something. They have other players who they could trade who could potentially get them you know, a decent rental, um, but they've traded a lot of prospects the last couple of years, many of them to Cincinnati, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> and that's just left them a little bit thin. Yeah, I don't want to, I'm not trying to be too negative on the system. I certainly don't mean that, but I do think anytime they call for somebody other than, you know, generic or lever or utility infielder, they're going to get hit on those two main guys. Um, and maybe to another to a lesser extent, um, Michael Arroyo, who is their one of their top international prospects. They've got a couple of those guys who are bubbling under um, and who have value. Gabriel Gonzalez. There's there's several of those guys, but they're just going to get hit on the top two a ton. And that might make it 
difficult for them to get a deal done if they feel like, no, these are the two we need to keep, which would be completely understandable. Not only are they former first-round picks, it doesn't really matter anymore. They're both producing really well for their ages and have a chance to play premium positions. I could completely understand DePoto, who would generally trade his own grandmother, um, saying, <laughs> no, 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 these two are building blocks and we need to keep these guys and we'll trade everybody else. I think the the way that roster's built, you know, having so many holes in the corners, you can almost just get the best available bat and shift players around too. You don't mm-hmm. have to really worry about where that player plays. You could try an upgrade at shortstop if you wanted to. You could go get an upgrade at second base, but their projected performances from first base, DH, left field, right field are all relatively light. So if you get anyone that can elevate that entire group, you can kind of mix and match more with the other members of that group and just be a lot better off going forward. So mm-hmm. I think they do have a lot of ways they can actually adjust as they uh, try and you know, do what they can to stay in the race in the AL West, or at least in the AL wildcard picture. I want to talk about your 2013 redraft. It's, uh, as you wrote, not a great class, but there are a lot of players in that group that are, are challenging to project going forward. I think with Cody Bellinger, we've probably had three or four different points now in his big league career where the ceiling has moved. And yeah. now it seems like it's inching back in the right direction after two pretty down and confusing years to close out his time with the Dodgers. So it's only been 37 games this year with the Cubs, but this looks more like the player we saw playing at MVP levels in that 2018 to 2020 window where the K's are down. He's still drawing his walks. He's making some hard contact, not quite as much as he was back then, but this is a much more sustainable player in the long run. And, I think we talked about him maybe in the first month of the season as a guy on a one-year deal with a mutual option for next year. There's a decision to be made on him. Is he Mm -hmm. actually someone that you want for multiple years if you are calling the shots in Chicago? Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Adrian Beltre. Different circumstances, certainly, but where he had that one-year, what Boris called a pillow contract in Boston, Mm -hmm. went completely off and he was never as bad as he looked in seattle but the ballpark was really unfavorable for him and then he parlayed that into i think a five-year deal with the rangers where he continued to be a star it don't always mm-hmm. work that work out that way but i might be inclined to think that in this particular case like if i'm the cubs i'm probably leaning towards doing something trying to work out a long-term deal here and if not then maybe trading for him trading him um because at that point, right, that's the only way to really cash in on you took the risk, you put the money out there, you took a risk, it's working out. Um, let's maximize that return if we can't do some kind of long-term deal or for whatever reason, they decide they don't want to retain him. And because, I mean, I know that division is eminently winnable, but I don't know that the Cubs are that team right now. And there's also a lot of pressure on them certainly to... Uh, extend Marcus Stroman. And if I'm in their shoes, who am I more willing to or interested in extending? I mean, I know age and position would favor Bellinger. They have a lot of position player prospects coming and nowhere near as much pitching. And so doing it within the context of what the organizational needs are going forward, I'd probably be more inclined to do something with Stroman and trade Bellinger or or extend both. Obviously, the Cubs ownership could extend both these guys. I'm just assuming they won't because they haven't acted like that in seven years. I think that's a fair assumption until they give you a reason uh, to make different assumptions about them as an organization. But yeah, I think defensively, and this is part of what made Bellinger such a, a, a fun player to 
take a chance on on it, and we'll use it again, air quotes, pillow deal, it, you knew you were getting a good glove in center field. Even if you just have a, a good defender in center field, fine. If the mm-hmm. bat doesn't come back, he's not going to hurt you. He makes, makes your team competent at a position where you maybe wouldn't have had someone who could play that spot every day, and then you move on after a year. Mm-hmm. I think that defense can also help a multi-year contract age a lot more gracefully as well. It's going to keep that all-around value at a much higher level. That Bell, that uh, Beltray comp is pretty interesting because people people were really down on Adrian Beltray after that last year in Seattle. That was back in, in 2009. He hit eight mm-hmm. homers in 111 games that year. He was 30 years old. I mean, everything seemed like it was just going wrong for him. That bounce back in Boston was huge, and then just having a run really throughout his entire 30s with the Rangers where yeah. he was as productive as he was. I don't think anybody, even if you liked him and believed in that bounce back, I think most people would have said, okay, two or three good years and then the usual mm-hmm. tail off. He didn't really do that. He aged exceptionally well. Yes. Beltre is, I mean, he's a inner circle Hall of Famer for me. Um, and that was a big part of it, right? He was probably a Hall of Famer anyway, even if he'd had sort of a normal decline phase. God, he played 21 years in the big leagues, 93 war. Got 477 homers, elite defender for basically most of his career, really, till the very, very end of his career, I'd say. Played one, two, three, eight seasons for Texas and was still, he tapered off in the last year, but he was like a league average hitter in his final year with the Rangers. He probably could have tacked on a few more years for some counting numbers. I'm glad he didn't, right? Good for him for walking away on his own terms. But yeah, Beltre's finish. I mean, I think the Seattle years really masked what a great player he was, right? He had the second in the MVP voting in 04. He had 48 homers to lead the National League for the Dodgers. Got a big five-year deal for the Mariners in a park that just killed his power. Like really unfavorable for him, but was actually still a pretty productive player there. It was just masked, you know, it was a different era. People didn't think as much about park effects. We weren't talking in terms of advanced metrics to measure overall offense. Um, you know, and then then he goes to the Red Sox. And I, you know, I will always wonder if part of him going to the Red Sox and then cr- turning that into a bigger deal was he hit 321. Yes, everything else was still great, but oh, the batting average was pretty. Now we can pay him. I think people would have said he's never going to hit 321 again. He actually sure. did two years did. later. Yes, hit 324 did. two years after that. I mean, yeah. it, probably one of the more underrated players of yeah. that era. And if he had come back, I think you're right. He could have played probably two or three more years to push up to 500 homers. Hitting that number would have made people treat him differently and talk about him a little differently. But I think history eventually will remember Adrian Beltre as one of the elite players of that era because by the numbers, he absolutely was. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew neck t-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing 
ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Let's talk about Tim Anderson for a minute. He was part of that 2013 uh, redraft that you did. And I thought Tim Anderson was a good steady, like 15 to 20 homers, 15 steals. The plate skills have always been kind of interesting because he doesn't walk a ton, but lowering the K rate these last two seasons, he's kind of shown that maybe that can work. What's next for Tim Anderson? He's still looking for his first home run this season. I always wonder when a guy misses some time at the beginning of the season, if they're just a little behind and playing catch up for a month or two sometimes is is why they're not themselves. Is is that what's going on with Tim Anderson? Or are we starting to see some some cracks in the skills that are going to be problematic as he eventually either gets traded by the White Sox or hits free agency after next season? I assume they'd pick up his club option at this point because it's it's like nothing to pick it up. So uh, what does the the back half of Tim Anderson's career look like to you? Yeah, I'm I'm a little surprised at like, he's underperforming his he's he's he has not lost his contact quality. For example, he's he's having a miserable year by any measure, and he didn't have a great year last year. Last year, he only had six home runs. He was a pretty consistent double digit homers guy, um, and he actually he the last two years he's cut his strikeout rate quite a bit. He is actually walking at a what would be a career high clip so far this year. And he doesn't have a whole lot to show for it um, in basically any measure of production. I mean, he's not even just getting hits, never mind the home runs. So you don't care if Tim Anderson doesn't hit a lot of home runs. If he's doing the other things he does, but he's not getting, I mean, like I said, he's just having a lot of what I think is probably just bad luck on balls in play. And certainly some of his expected stat casts numbers would indicate the same thing. Um, it's also 29 or 30? See, actually, I think he's 30 this year, um, or turns 30 over the course of this year. But that's pretty young to collapse like that. But like we're saying with Colton Wong, I mean, it does happen. Um, I'd be really surprised if this were it. And then there's always the maybe this guy actually does just need a change of scenery. Like, I understand that always feels a little woo, even to a rationalist like me. <laughs> But there's no question that getting somebody into a different environment, different clubhouse, different coaching staff, getting into a winning environment, for certain guys, maybe something changes. Maybe it's a mechanical change. Maybe it's an effort level thing. I have no idea what's going on with Anderson. I am definitely not giving up on him going forward. And maybe he just ends up signing for less money than anybody expected um, somewhere else, and some team gets a bargain. Yeah. Do you think he's a shortstop for if he signs a three or four year deal once he eventually hits free agency? Is he a shortstop the entire time? Or like many players, once they get past 30, does he move to the right side of the diamond? You know, I'm not rushing him off shortstop. I I would sign him with the understanding that that's a possibility rather than the expectation that it's going to happen. 
and figure if you sign him for four years, he's definitely a shortstop for the first two. And you're hoping he's continuing rather than saying it's two years at short, it's two at second. We just know that going in. That's very fair. John Gray was a part of this draft class, third overall pick of the Rockies back in 2013. He's had a pretty strange career. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I'm trying to think, getting ready for the show today, I'm trying to think of Rockies pitchers, players that were drafted by the Rockies who made it through the six years of club control, were healthy enough to reach free agency, and then finally like continue to pitch well outside of Colorado. Like mm-hmm. That's short list because no one really came to mind as a clear like oh yeah that that guy did it and was really healthy and good afterwards but john gray is putting together two seasons now in texas for a season and a half in texas where he's doing a lot of the things people would have expected him to do back when the rockies took him third overall 10 years ago yeah it is i mean it's kind of good in the broader obviously good for gray good for texas but also in the broader sense of this idea that i've never ever bought where, oh, you can't, you know, you go to Colorado as a pitcher and and your career's over. I never understood why that would have to be the case. I understand if people go to Colorado and change the way they pitch and get hurt as a result. Okay. That's a logical argument that this can happen, but why, right? Why does it have to be that way? Certainly if you're the right type of pitcher and if Colorado is targeting pitchers, maybe who would fit well for them. And I understand no one's cracked this code. I'm not pretending I have either, but why couldn't a pitcher go there for a couple of years, get paid, or maybe that's just who drafted him and he plays there for a couple of years and then goes somewhere else to a more favorable environment and has greater success. Like I, I don't know why that has to be true. I never liked that narrative um, and, and didn't like that as well. Colorado will never be able to sign free agent pitching, so they have to draft it. I mean, sure, I might be more inclined to draft pitching if I were in Colorado just because you need so much of it. But their money's as green as anybody else, anybody else's, right? They should be able to sign pitching. And if pitchers are saying, oh, I don't want to go there, you're getting paid. And as long as there are examples out there like Gray, of, hey, there's life after pitching for the Rockies too, That's maybe that's a good thing. And maybe that helps the Rockies too. They could point to Gray and say, no, this guy pitched for us for a long time. He was one of the most successful pitchers, I think, in franchise history and left and is having a great second act for the Rangers. So yeah, feel you should feel comfortable pitching for us. I guess we could probably put Tyler Anderson in that group. He was drafted two years before Gray back in 2011. Yeah. At least found some success yep. once he eventually got out. So I think that could be another positive mark. I always thought he was a, not a great fit. Like the Gray, I was like, no, he could be good in Colorado. And they, they tried messing with his delivery at one point, but then but by the time he got to the majors, he was fine. Anderson always seemed like a bit of a tough fit for Colorado because I thought he would be kind of homer prone, which he was. Yeah, he kind of was for a while for them and then got hurt and then they traded him and he had to, had to kind of bounce around a little bit to find himself um i guess it was only two years actually after right he pitched for the giants briefly in the shortened season and then went to pittsburgh and that's when i think he really started to to establish himself as a bona fide starter and then obviously the year with la first la dodgers was an all-star and developed into a guy who got a you know was good enough for the three-year deal with the Angels, which is working out terribly so far. Yeah, it's it's just strange because part of this too for the Rockies is they have to be able to identify quality pitchers. Mm-hmm. Their scouting department, that's why why aren't there a lot of former Colorado pitchers having success around the league? They don't find big leaguers consistently. That's part of the problem too. The 2013 class also had Chris Bryant and Ryan McMahon, teammates now in Colorado, coincidentally. Mm-hmm. 
Bryant's had some injury issues in his first two seasons with the Rockies. I think I was just surprised when he chose to sign there because of the state of the franchise. But hey, maybe win one World Series, you say, this is my shot. I'm going to take the greenest money I can find, the biggest mm-hmm. pile of money I can find, and and be happy with that. And okay, then you're, you're set for life, right? You got that mm-hmm. uncovered. Maybe that's that's the thinking for Chris Bryant. I guess I can, I can wrap my head around that. Uh, Ryan McMahon was part of that class as well. These guys are kind of important players for the Rockies the next few years because they're both under long-term deals. And yep. I guess my my question for you is how do you see both of these guys aging? Bryant, more complicated because he's already 31 and he's had some injury issues. And McMahon at 28 has just been somewhat inconsistent because at times it looks like he's going to bring the K rate down. At times it looks like he's, it looks like he's going to unlock more power. And it never seems like all of those things happen in sync. Like the best versions mm-hmm. of Ryan McMahon don't all seem to to connect all at once. And I wonder how much of that is dealing with Coors going in and out of Colorado and, and the difficulties for hitters making those adjustments. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I feel certainly feel a lot better about McMahon going forward because of his age health. Like if he ended up having a sort of a complete breakout season, became a top 10, you know, make some MVP ballots at age 30, 31. I could definitely see that. I don't know what to make of Bryant. Like he's just not been healthy. It certainly really hasn't been healthy since he got to Colorado, right? 42 games last year. He's on the injured list again right now. Um, you know, and even his last couple of years in the in Chicago, he was better than he's been, right? Well, 19 and 21. Obviously, 20 was the shortened season. He was hurt for part of it and he wasn't 100 percent but he was fine in 21. He was an above average hitter, kind of like a league average player. He hasn't even been that really for Colorado. You know, I just don't know. I don't know if this is just it. He's going to be kind of broken and intermittently productive. I hope that I hope that I'm wrong. I was like Chris Bryant is a player, and I want to see the contract work out poorly for the Rockies at all. I just don't have a lot of optimism there. Whereas McMahon, he's younger, he's been healthy. Wouldn't shock me if he had a year where he just did all of these things together, right? He's done almost everything you want to see in pieces across different years or parts of years. Hopefully, he can get it all together at some point. Yeah, I think with Bryant too, the other thing that stands out to me, just looking at the the quality of the contact, you, you see the hard hit rates just drop off over time. And you wonder how much of that is, I think it's been back and shoulder and, and now he's got a heel injury. All, all these different ailments could certainly be a big part of that as you get further into your career. What are you bouncing back to? Are you bouncing right. back to the player you were at 23, 24? Probably not. Hard to see that. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to see it. And it, all of this is to say, you know, because he's there on a long-term deal, because they basically gave away Nolan Arenado. I'm not completely convinced that Chris Bryant finishes his contract in Colorado. Sure. Stranger things have already happened, but I also don't think the, the floor with Bryant is where it was with Arenado either, where there will be as many teams willing to take on the risk. And I think the health is part of that, but also Arenado's defensive value is a huge part of why it was kind of a, a no brainer sort of move for the, the Cardinals to go ahead and, and make that deal uh, with Colorado a couple of years ago. Uh, if you want to check out that redraft, by the way, theathletic.com slash baseball show gets you a subscription for $2 a month for the first year. Uh, one more question I had for you today, Keith, before we go. So much focus on the A's this week, understandably so, as they are basically all but moving. A few more things need to be taken care of, but it's, we talked about it a bit on the Thursday show. But the Royals are just as bad as the A's in terms of what they're doing in 2023, and it wasn't supposed to be this way. Projection for the rest of the season from Fangraphs has him at 59 wins, same as Oakland. Vinny Pasquantino is going to have shoulder surgery. His season is over. It's labrum surgery on his lead shoulder. So 
that's a pretty significant injury to work back from. Hopefully he gets all the way back and is good to go in 2024. But I think generally this was a group of young position players that many of us thought would get at least a little bit better this year with Bobby Witt Jr. and MJ Melendez and Pasquantino being part of that. What's going wrong for this group? How, how are these young players kind of spinning the tires and even going the wrong direction in some cases when just a year ago it looked like things were trending up in Kansas City? Yeah, and then the, um, it's across the board, right? It is. But the, the pitching development problems in Kansas City go back years. And I think any anybody who's paid any attention to the Royals at all is familiar with that. That huge draft class of college starters, Brady Singer and Jackson Cowher and Daniel Lynch and uh, Chris Bubich. I mean, that's basically not produced a major league starter. I know Singer was okay last year. I thought it was a fluke at the time and it's kind of looked like it. He's getting destroyed by lefties, as you'd expect. Um, from a guy with that arm slot and that arsenal, he's got a six and a half ERA. Lynch is nearly six ERA and his stuff is down. He was hurt to start the year. He's been back for four starts, but his stuff is way down. And he couldn't afford to lose stuff because his velocity um, was uh, undermined by a lack of life on the fastball. And now his secondary stuff is backed up. And Howard's been kind of a disaster, mostly just in terms of throwing strikes. I still think that's a guy who could probably go to another organization. Like that guy goes to the Dodgers and he's a good reliever all of a sudden. Like that wouldn't surprise me. But just to get nothing out of that group is so detrimental to a franchise. Like it is going to take them a long time to recover from that many high picks, that many pitchers of some promise, and they're probably going to not end up without a single big league starter from the entire group. That's astonishing to me. And I understand they've changed a lot of personnel. They've changed some of the, how they're doing things. They're still, you know, JJ Piccolo has only been there, I think a year. So this is all going to take time. And this is really not about the current regime. It's more about what they've inherited. The thing that is, is like even more surprising to me though, is the non-development of some of those hitters who all took huge steps forward two years ago with Melendez Prado, who just, you know, they have flopped in the big leagues. Bobby Witt with a 282 on base percentage in the big leagues. It's just, how? How did that happen? This is a guy who not only did he show really good plate discipline in the minors, he's been playing baseball since he was like six months old. This is the last person you'd expect to be so undisciplined. And just for the club as a whole to be fairly undisciplined in terms of, both in terms of walk rate and just in terms of getting themselves into good counts to do damage. They had done so much on the minor league side when Alex Umwalt was helping there to improve hitters' approaches, to improve their plans at the plate. None of that seems to be translating to the majors yet. Maybe it will at some point, but I'm really surprised, really surprised at how little that has come across and helped the major league club. And and that might be the harder thing to, to address in the, like this, these are all big problems and they're all going to take years for them to solve. But man, if you have hitters who are performing, performing and making progress and doing the things you want, and then they get to the big leagues and it's all gone. I don't, I just don't know what to do about that. Well, that's a really difficult problem to solve. And, and something that really caught my eye every once in a while, the, the four U tab comes through uh, Jack Johnson, who is a contributor for Royals review. And I think he's on uh, Kansas City Sports Radio had a tweet that said, good morning, Royals fans. And it listed Ryan O'Hearn, Emmanuel Rivera, Brent Rooker, uh, Richard Lovelady, Joel Piamps, a bunch of guys that have been kind of moved off this roster over the last couple of years. And all of their performances, many of them in part time or lower leverage roles, but all of those guys are useful big leaguers. It's 
it's unbelievable to see that you you actually had guys in the organization who are now having success for someone else, which mm-hmm. makes you wonder like how much of the problem is just within the big league staff. How much how much are you missing there that is actually correctable if you just get better coaching in place or a different plan? It doesn't even have to be people. Yeah, yeah. The philosophy just could be wrong. Right. That is right. It could. It, it's a different process. It's going to take time. Anytime you've got to change up at the top, too, it's going to take time for that to trickle down. And I think Piccolo inherited a lot of things that needed to be changed. Um, and that's going to take time. So, you know, I, I am inclined to give them a lot of slack. But boy, these are big problems. These are really big problems to have to deal with. And I, there's not only are there no easy solutions, the hard solutions are are pretty hard. Like it's a lot. Mm. Oh, go import an entire rotation. Right? Oh, your entire, almost your entire lineup is showing far less of a plan at the plate than what they showed in AAA. Again, obviously I say majors and minors, it's a huge gap. This is shocking, right? This is, and also these guys were posting very strong walk rates and very strong batting lines in general in 2021, not this year with the automated strike zone at AAA. So there's more reason to believe that a lot of that would carry forward and it just hasn't. And you can't just sort of wave your hands and say, well, it's it's just this this regime. You need to change. No, they've already made a lot of these changes. They've changed the manager. They've changed the GM. Um, now, those guys are going to need time. But obviously, it wasn't quite that simple, And it, which, again, leads me to the point of, I don't really know what to say. They called me and said, what do you do? I don't know. New phone? Who dis? Yeah, it's one of the worst systems in baseball right now, too, right? So it's not like there's help around the corner. I love their first rounder last year, Gavin Cross. He's been awful in high A. I thought he was one of the better bets to hit in the draft. So do a lot of people. And he's been terrible. Yeah, they're really, um, it's it's really unfortunate. Again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm piling on or anything. I'm, I am mystified at how they've ended up in this situation. One of the more difficult problems to solve uh, in Major League Baseball right now, trying to fix the Kansas City Royals. It's going to take time, as you said, Keith. We are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder, you can find us on Twitter. Keith is at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. Again, $2 a month gets you in the door with a subscription to The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash baseball show will get you that offer. That's going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Baseball Show. We're back with you next week. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.